0: Welcome to Trust
1: the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear.
0: We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Trust listeners, get excited because today we are going shopping. (laughs) And because you know we love all things sustainable, we are actually going vintage shopping just outside of Paris at the famed and fabled and much beloved Les Pouces flea market. Which, according
1: to many sources, is the largest antique market in the entire world. Leipus encompasses seven hectares or more than 17 acres with 1,700 individual vendors, and we went and saw them all. Yeah. No, we didn't. She's lying. (laughs) I wish we did. I know what you might be thinking this place is huge. Huge, And its size might make a little more sense when you learn that Le Pousse is actually a collection of 14 individual markets, each with their own specialties in terms of the types of items for sale. So naturally, we just had to go here on our recent dressed fashion history tour of Paris.
0: Yes. And I have to say, Cass, visiting Le Pousse was something that has been on my bucket list for the last 20 years. Um, And for whatever reasons, the last couple of times I've been to Paris, my plans just didn't line up to make it to the flea market because it's only open on the weekends, so Saturday and Sunday. Although I I will say that I do believe that there are certain higher end vendors and a couple of different specific markets that hold additional hours for, for professional decorators and other fellow dealers, et cetera. But now having been there not one, not two, but three times in August of 2021. Well, let's just say it did not disappoint.
1: Yeah, and I have to say, I had never even heard of it until you brought it up as a must Stop on our fashion history tour. So I was in for a real treat. It was pretty incredible. And even going multiple times, we were only able to explore a handful of the markets. And even then, we only scratched the surface because so many of the shops we visited were closed for August, but Mm -hmm. we still saw so much. We'll definitely be going back and maybe we'll get a chance to check out the several other markets that we missed in this labyrinth of covered shops located just outside of Paris and the nearby northern suburb of Saint.
0: Juan. Yes, and I'm glad you brought this up, Cass, that the flea market isn't located in Paris proper because this actually has to do with a larger history of the buying and selling of used goods. And this area of saint Juan became really well known as a market for used items starting in the 1870s. But the history of the secondhand trade is much older than that in Paris, going back centuries before the 1870s. And we've mentioned it many times before on the show, listeners, you know, historically speaking, clothing was considered materially valuable, sometimes some of the most valuable things a person might own, you know, unlike today when clothing is considered disposable by many people. So historically, because of the intrinsic value of clothing, garments oftentimes went on to have second, third, or fourth lives beyond their original wearer. Yeah, in the past, it was Far more
1: common that a garment that was new to you was not actually new at all. And historically, most women knew how to sew, after all, and often fashioned clothing for themselves and their families, and they would do this from new lengths of cloth. But more often than not, these garments, after they were made, were handed down within families, they were passed on to friends, etc., once the original wearer no longer had use for them. And the ultra-wealthy might be the only segment of the population to never know what it was like to wear a pre-worn piece of clothing. Although their clothes often became secondhand when no longer fashionable, they were passed on to, say, their ladies-in-waiting, their personal maids, valets, or other household staff. Clothing also found its way into the hands of a new wearer by means of being sold via the secondhand market.
0: Yes, and traders of used clothing have historically gone by a few different names. frippers aka frippery which is a word we see more often now biffers chiffoniers and rag and bone men include just a kind of few slang terms for traders of used clothing and you know prior to the 1960s when it was the hippies that made it well you know cool to eschew capitalist structures inherent to the fashion system and they were wearing vintage clothing because of this they they made it well hip you know hippies <laughs> get it. Um, but basically, you know, before the 1960s, the dealing of used clothes came with a bit of stigma. And it's really easy to see why after reading descriptions from the 17th and 18th centuries about some of the sanitary conditions in areas where used clothing was sold. Hygiene being an entirely different matter at this time, you know, sometimes even bathing came with its own stigma but all these used garments especially the ones that were sold at lower price points had likely had several previous owners and had accumulated you know all of these body oils and fluids and stains and soiling not to mention perhaps fleas and also bed bugs and this is where the term flea market comes from and lepouse translates to the fleas in french
1: And can I just say I never even remotely related flea markets with actual fleas. I just (laughs) assumed it was some sort of other relationship between the word flea. But the fact that it actually relates to fleas is super interesting because it's such a common part of our vernacular today. It's super interesting. So needless to say, the sale of secondhand clothing could be a bit of an unsavory and quite frankly, dishonest business. Some dealers went so far as to attempt to repair holes not with patches or mints, but with a quick fix of sap or tar, which clearly would not hold up for much longer, them getting these items sold and out the door. So during that 18th century, certain covered passageways of Paris were also sites where used garments of dubious quality were sold. And this had a couple of benefits, of course, protection from the weather, but also these passageways could be dark and dim, and this aided in concealing the poor conditions of the garments the Frippers hogged. And I also would just want to say that these covered passageways are, it's a super interesting topic in and of themselves. They were basically early shopping malls or arcades. There were at one point over 150 in Paris, I think, by the 1850s. And today, only a couple remain, including the Passage Choiseul, which we happened to stumble across when visiting the oldest haberdashery in Paris, Ultramod, located on none other than the Rue de Choiseul.
0: Yes. And there's obviously a lot more to say on this topic of secondhand clothing, and I think that it- It would be really, really interesting to do a much longer episode on this kind of like the trade inherent to that um, in the future. So stay tuned for that, perhaps. Back to Les Pouces, you know, uh, the seeds of Les Pouces as a marketplace were planted in the 19th century, around 1870 or so, when secondhand vendors began to gather there once a week on Sundays. And located just outside of the city boundaries of Paris, in the village of Saint-Ouen, as we've already mentioned, this area was officially designated as a formal marketplace in 1885. And this date has this really interesting tie-in to a bit of city planning and waste management history of the city of Paris. Because in 1883, so two years before Les Pouces was officially designated as a marketplace. So in 1883, the prefect of Paris had instituted the use of iron trash cans with lids for the purposes of waste management. And all of a sudden, we have all of Paris's trash kind of gathered together in these easily identifiable receptacles, So what happened was pickers started regularly going through the contents of these bins to try and find discarded objects that they felt like they could resell. And this is probably a a little horrifying, but Cass, apparently all of this rummaging through these trash bins, these iron trash cans, occurred between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m. I'm sure everyone was so pleased by this newfound phenomenon. (laughs) So
1: at the end of the 19th century, there was an estimated 11,000. Thousand people working in the profession of picker flipper in Paris, and many areas began to require a quote unquote parking permit, (laughs) something similar, to vend their wares in a given area. So when the Paris Metro was built, the outer rings of the city were now even more accessible, easily accessible, and weekend jaunts to the countryside surrounding the city drew Parisians out in droves. And suburban marketplaces and Les Pousses in particular grew to include increasing varieties of goods. like furniture and books, that appeal to the middle classes, and this now necessitated specialty markets. The 14 markets that now make up Poos each have their own founding story, which is so fascinating, and some of them are quite interesting as they reflect on the commercial desires of a given era.
0: As Lapoose became increasingly popular as a weekend shopping destination, artists and musicians also set up around the flea market. And fun fact here friends, a very specific form of jazz known as gypsy jazz was thought to have originated from the Lapoose market as it was performed for the listening pleasure of market goers. Today, Le Puce receives 5 million visitors a year and is a protected cultural zone in France. And it is either the fourth or fifth most visited destination in France, depending on the source that you consult. And the market is also said to hold the highest concentration of art and antique dealers anywhere in the world. And I think maybe if just to kind of flesh this out a little further for everyone, Cash, should we do a very quick rundown of the offerings of each marketplace? Certainly.
1: Yeah. So here it goes. And of course, we're citing from the official brochure of Les Pousses here because there's a lot of crossover between the types of things offered in each specialty market. But so, just generally speaking, the Antica market, for instance, is where you will find furnishings and artifacts from the 18th and 19th centuries. At the Beron market, you will find furnishings and unique objects from Europe, Asia, jewels, paintings, and objects from the 18th century.
0: Yeah, I went to the Borel in our third visit there, and I was totally in awe because what we're talking about here is museum-quality pieces, but also they had price tags to match. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But likewise, at Combo Market, you will also find furnishings, paintings, and objects from the 18th and 19th centuries, including old weapons, objects of wonder, and Danish furnishings. While at La Market, you will find large-scale merchandise, including staircases, bookshelves, and actual fireplaces. And at the Paul Baer market are located furniture,
1: artifacts, decorative objects dating all the way back to the 17th centuries. Likewise, at Malassie, you will also encounter very old objects dating to antiquity all the way up to contemporary offerings. So Asian artifacts, art deco objects and design, books, toys, fashion, photos, European glassware, and even erotica.
0: Yes. Well, if there's erotica there, I'm headed there next time I visit to hunt for fun pieces by Gerda Wegener. Um, (laughs) We've already done an episode on her. If you would like to learn more about her work as a fashion illustrator or her dabblings in the realm of erotica during the 1920s, you can head back for that. Um, And as Cash, you know, I have quite a few of her naughty illustrations. Oh, yeah. They're fabulous, (laughs) including one purchased on this last trip. But um, okay. At Le Passage Market, you will find books, postcards, garden furniture, and quote-unquote, old clothes. We did not go to Le Passage, so I'll have to add that to my list for next time as well. At Serpet Market, you'll find high-end relics from antiquity all the way up to the 1970s. The Couillé and Lucine markets are generally for antique professionals only, while the Malik market sells new items and clothing. And as we both noticed, Cass, more than a few designer knockoffs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, this was a, the busiest part of the market that we visited, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, so the reason we listed out all of these kind of specialties is just to really illustrate the vastness of Lipus. And these are, by and large, the markets that we didn't get to. Um, So shall we discuss the ones we did see, Cass, with our listeners and perhaps offer a few recommendations of of places to check out? Yes. So we all visited
1: three markets known to have a wealth of vintage clothing for sale. Dauphine, which is a two-story enclosed structure that houses vintage fashion and textiles, music, booksellers, and furniture. Notable at Dauphine Market is the fact that there's an entire vintage fashion section on the second level. I actually walked by one shop that had a full-on 18th century silk-embroidered long on a mannequin And the amount of 18th century fashion and textiles in this one shop was just mind-blowing. I actually refrained from adding any of these particular items to my collection. (laughs) But April, you and I both made some purchases at Dauphine that weren't necessarily garments, but more fashion ephemera. And there's this whole section on the second floor, for instance, that has vintage fashion, and then more than a few shops that sold fashion prints. You and I, of course, were both on the hunt for pochoir, hand stenciled, early 20th century fashion plates, and we found them in so, so many
0: shops. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, and at one point, I was in a completely different kind of book print shop than you, and I was officially cleaning them out, buying all of their French fashion magazines that were published during the Nazi occupation during the late '30s and early '40s. And you came up to me like, "Hey, I ran into one of our listeners," and then I was very confused for a second because, like, right, all of our listeners that are. Our travelers on the tour—they're—they're they're all here, right? At the market, everyone's here. But then I realized that you met someone not with our tour. Um, yeah. So, do you want to tell us
1: that? Story? Yes. Yeah, so um, obviously, listeners, you know, April and I wrote a book, Fashion the Art of Pochoir. So we're looking for pochoir prints wherever we go. And I found this charming collection of them at one shop in particular. And I found a Georges Lepop Gazette de Bon Ton Pochoir of Poirier's famed sorbet gown, one of my absolute favorite illustrations. You know, it has the woman charmingly holding two different colored roses that mirrored the ones on her gown, which she asks Laquel or which one. I love it. It's such a charming illustration. So I'm like talking to the shop owner and we're talking about Pochois fashion illustrations. And I just hear someone behind me go, excuse me, do you have a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> And I must have turned bright red because, (laughs) April, you meet our listeners all the time in New York. I never meet our listeners um, in New Mexico. I've met one, I think, in my entire time doing this podcast. But I turned around and it was this young man and he just, you know, he said, my name's Drew. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Uh, He's American. Uh, He's going to be a fashion student at Cornell this fall or already is And it was just such a pleasure to meet him and his family. And then, yeah, I I walked up to you and introduced him to you as well, because it was just such a treat. And all the way in France, we find each other. Yeah. He was
0: like, well, she was in the fashion section, so I figured it was Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But he recognized me because of my voice
1: and the fact that I was buying pochoir. So he like put all these pieces together. But it was just such a treat to meet you, Drew. Yes. And good luck with school. And, of course, uh, this structure also had so many wonderful vintage shopping clothing opportunities. And a lot of it was really affordable. I actually snagged a 1960s white tennis zip front dress off a
0: Euro rack for five Euros.
1: It was five Euros. Yeah. And you brought it up
0: to me. You're like, oh, look what I just brought. I'm like, are those your initials on the dress? (laughs) It's embroidered with CZ on the chest that she didn't even notice.
1: (laughs) So... (gasps) So many unexpected things, so little time, right? Um, yes. So now, April, shall we wander down to the Vernaison market? Yes, I will walk
0: right alongside with you. In the rain, I have to say, on our yeah, first Yeah, the first
1: week stars. we were there, it was Get
0: pouring. pouring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was pouring outside, and
1: we both discovered this wonderful bookseller, s- Poster Paul, at the far back of the Vernaison market, and they had a ton of fashion items, including rare fashion books and rare pershaw fashion plates. I literally spent an hour there, at least an hour, because they had so much there. They had this whole section of Le Mode. And I actually got one of my favorite issues of Le Mode magazine. It's the September 1911 issue, and it has this wonderful um, robe and a chapeau de Jean Lanvin on the front. She's wearing like this lime green blouse over this white chemise like gown that has all these beautiful three-dimensional roses embroidered all over it. It was such a treat to find Pochois, especially because we didn't really get to go to the booksellers on the Seine where we usually get our mm-hmm. Pochoir fashion plates.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Um I, I bought a, f- a couple things there too. I bought one of my favorite images that we actually use in the in Fashion and the Art of Pochoir book, which is by A.E. Marty, and it's a really interesting document of kind of like politics and war because it's an image entirely in Pushwar of a soldier returning from war, relaxing on the couch next to his wife and his three little children come in and he's still in his uniform and they bring him his civilian clothes. So they're handing him his suit, like, welcome home, dad. It's really, really charming. I, I It took my breath away when I was, I was going through the pile. I was like, oh! <gasps> they have it. <laughs> I'm like, it's sold. They had so many. She had so many pieces that we featured in our book. Some of them were
1: close to a thousand euros. Like there are a lot of Barbiers from like the Pacan album, La Vente, and Le Pop from that album as well. Um, I found Martin's La Belle et La Bette, which we featured in the mm-hmm. book and this wonderful Brousseau illustration of these women going
0: swimming. So it was just incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah run, don't walk, yeah. <laughs> to the very back of the Renaissance market if you're, if you're looking for <laughs> these gems.
1: Yeah, so many treasures, so little time. There's so many wonderful vintage clothing dealers in the Vernaison market. They're not all grouped together like they're at Dauphine. So you have to do a bit of wandering, but to name just a few booths, we have Lily and Daniel, Les Pousses de Gigi, Analia Vintage, Quand Grand Mare, Francine Dentel, which specializes in lace, and also Fond Davantai, which sells precious vintage
0: fans. Yes. And when I was in that that particular fan shop, the owner was working with a customer who clearly was a very serious collector. And she was pulling out what were probably some of the higher price items from these drawers in which they're stored. And one of the things she pulled out was this incredible eagle feather fan from the 19th century, which quite possibly might've been de Valois because we saw one. We went to visit the Delaware archive that was another of those eagle feather fans. It was amazing. It was probably about two. Feet across of eagle feathers. And just another pro tip because I did wander into the Berlin market and there's another fan dealer over there as well that also sells luxury etui. And we've mentioned this term on the show in the past in the context of the Chatelaine episode, but etui were these tiny little antique cases that were used to hold small instruments of various types. They could be sewing instruments or grooming instruments. Some of them even had like little holders for your cosmetics. But some of these we were in really beautiful precious metals, ivory, tortoiseshell, etc. I didn't even dare ask a price because I didn't want to know I had to leave immediately before I bought something.
1: So dress listeners, you don't think we're done yet, do you? Because we are not. We have perhaps saved one of our favorite shops for last Leaving the Renaissance Market, you head down the Rue Rossier, past the Dauphine Market, and around the corner where there are several outdoor bistros to grab a leisurely lunch. And we ended our trip at the Jules Val Market with a visit to the vintage clothing store of all of our dreams, Shea Sarah, a veritable treasure trove of not only vintage garments, but also accessories, Passamentary and fabrics. Shea Sarah occupies both storefronts in this covered passageway, and we cannot recommend it enough. It's literally an A to Z of fashion history.
0: And Cass is not joking when she says it's an A to Z, because it, it, they have several different kinds of sections, but one of the sections is this high-end designer section, and the whole wall is arranged by designer from a to. see. So it starts with Alia, and then, you know, like, then there's some Cardan, some Dior, some Foth, all the way down to YSL, you know, and Friends at the end of the alphabet. And just remember that this is a vintage shop where all of these things are for sale. This is not a museum. You can touch things. You can try them on. You can look at the construction on the inside. And I was totally blown away when I pulled off the rack a little black dress from Cristobal's Balenciaga Spanish Couture House Isa. And I was just like, it was just sitting there on the rack. And I'm like, this should be in a museum. <laughs> um, but you know, it was probably from the 1950s or the early 1960s and the silhouette itself was kind of like a sheath dress. But as you looked closer to the construction, and it's all black, uh, which kind of hid the fact that the construction itself was very complicated, but it was also like this really simple dress. And all of those elements brought together created this really specific sort of elegance to it. It was, it was beautiful. Did you have a favorite item at Shea Sarah Cass? Also, I know you bought something there. So maybe you'll tell us a little bit about that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one of my favorite things was, of course, the shop dog. There's big, oh. fluffy pup who's just hanging out.
0: His name is Nez, which is Snow.
1: <laughs> he was so, he or she was so, so sweet and just loved being pet. My sister had a moment with him, which is adorable. I mean, just walking in that Area is super amazing because literally it's like almost feels like a block on both sides of just clothing, all displayed on mannequins and the shop windows on one side. And then the other side is like all these accessories and textiles. I mean, it was so amazing. As our listeners might remember, I lost my luggage. So I was like on a hunt that first week to find just something that I could wear to our going away dinner. And I had, the week prior when we first went there, spotted this like black floral A-line skirt. It's this resist dyed fabric. Um, It had these wonderful floral motifs all across it. And it actually looked like it was my size because I'm not even remotely close to like a sample size. And I was like, when I come back, I'm going to try that on. And then the next week I did. It was there. I tried it on. It fit like a dream. And I bought it. Yay! And now I own it. And what's interesting is there's, it's one of those like really, it's homemade, but it's has, it's an incredible textile mm-hmm. and it has in the salvage, it has like all this information in it, including the designer of the fabric, which is Pomoline Vion, V-I-L-L-O-N. I cannot find anything about this textile purveyor dress listeners. So if you know
0: anything, please email us and let us know. I will also keep my eye out as I go through magazines and stuff at work. So, really, we cannot stress this enough that if you do go to Le Po, do not miss Shay Sarah. They also do have an online presence as well. but um, I can't say I, seeing everything there in person is a whole completely different experience, and you know, Cass, as you know, a lot of French fashion houses are actually chez Sarah customers when they're looking for vintage pieces for inspiration, and that's actually how I learned about it from my dear friend and former neighbor, Irene Jaramille, who is a fashion historian who married a Parisian and now works at Loewe. So, you know, very special shout-out and thank you to you, Irene, for all of your Paris recommendations. Thank you, Irene. (laughs) Also, as a side note for anyone visiting uh, Le Pousses in the future, this is just a little word of a caution that we issued to our travelers that were with us there as well you know lapoose was used to be very well known in the past for pickpockets and things have gotten infinitely better in recent years and we definitely did not have any incidents at the flea market but it's just something to keep in mind um, when you go there that you need to be vigilant about your bags your belongings your wallets etc so we want everyone to travel safe So dress listeners, I don't know about
1: you, but I'm exhausted from all the shopping Uh, that does it for us today. May you consider adding some additional wardrobe items from your local flea market next time you get dressed. If you have any questions or would like to register your interest for any future excursions, hit us up. You can email us at iheartmedia.com or alternately, you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. Of course, you can follow along at Facebook at dressedpodcast without the underscore.
0: Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeart that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you soon.